All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly thanking you for this opportunity to study your word. Bless our lives now as we reach into this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, yeah, all right. We've come to chapter 3 and verse 11. And I will start where I started last time. <laughs> it, you know, it does. It, you know, it never has changed from the time of Moses. And I think the comment that I started with are in the first uh, three words or first five words of uh, verse 11, but Moses said to God, you just don't do that. You can do it, but it never works. You're not going to win that argument. Uh, if, uh, if God says he's going to do it this way, that's what's going to happen. The interesting thing is that when you study the men whom God used in, especially in the Old Testament, like Gideon and so forth, you will find that they shrink away from the call. This is, you, you know, it's like, God, you got the wrong guy here. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm less than nothing. I'm out here. That's really the kind of guy that God can use because in this case, it's not, and we're going to see this in the scriptures, it's not Moses who delivers the children of, of Israel. It's God. Moses is just an instrument. He's a mouthpiece. Uh, God needs somebody to speak to Pharaoh. God needs somebody to portray his message, to relay his message to the children of Israel. Uh, and our, our God would use somebody. God doesn't need anything, but God would use somebody to do that. So it was Moses. And we've already seen how Moses was uniquely qualified in his early life. So now Moses is 80 years old. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses makes a, mis a mistake. He's going to make a lot of them, uh, as they all do, as, as all men who are called do. But here, he says uh, that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt. Well, God, in the next verse, gently corrects the mindset of Moses. It says in verse 12, And he said, or so he said, I will be with you. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the I will surely be with you. That's probably a better translation. No doubt about it. God says, I will surely be with you. So, you know, it's like, like you don't have to worry about this. You know, I'm, I'm going to do all the stuff. You just, you just do what I tell you to do, and that's your only job. Your job is to do what I tell you to do. I'll take care of all the stuff. So he responds to Moses. Now, this is Moses' 
first objection. Moses has more than one objection here. We'll see them as we go along. And they're not really completed until chapter 4. And I don't think we're going to get to chapter 4 tonight. So his, his first objection is simply, you know, I'm not really qualified to do this. I, I thank you, Lord. I appreciate, I appreciate your attention. But uh, I've, I'm out here with sheep in the middle of nowhere. And I, I kind of like it that way. God says, I'll be with you. Um, continuing in verse 12, this is the sign for you that it was I who sent you. Now, I want you to notice the language here because it speaks to the sovereignty of God. He says here um, in uh, verse 12, a sign that I, and in the, in the Hebrew, shalatka, it's, uh, it's in a tense where it, should, it could be translated, I have sent. It's in, a, in, the mind of, in the mind of God, this thing's a done deal. Um, this is going to happen. In my mind, it's already happened, and there's just nothing you can do about it. This is a sign that I sent you. I'm the one who sent you. When you take the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And that's signing. That's where he's going to give them the law. So they're going to come back to this place uh, on the way out. Now, you know, what are... God doesn't operate in odds, but just to use a human perspective, what are the odds that two and a half, three million people, number one, would even follow this guy. It's, it's hard enough to get a congregation of a few dozen people on the same page on something. And, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just flabbergasted at the job Moses did. Of course, God said, I'm with you. It's all God. When this happens, not if this happens, you say, when you take the people out of Egypt, I am one who surely has sent you. I will have, when you take, not if you take them, when you take them out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God says this is a fact. There, there's no wiggle room here. Uh, God, God doesn't say, you and I are going to work together. We're going to put together a plan. And our plan is going to be to have them come out and we're going to try to get, a, to get them to swing around this way so that we can maybe come to this one. That's not the way God operates. He just says, it's very simple. When you take the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is where it's going to be. You shall, you shall serve or worship God on, on uh, this mountain. So the, uh, the, the, word, the word there is, is a is a word that practically speaks of enslavement when he says you'll you will work and serve or you will servingly work you'll work as a servant that's that's essentially what uh, what the lord is saying here uh, of how they're going to what kind of relationship he's going to have they will do this you will worship god on this mountain you will serve god in worship and in work on this mountain uh, this is going to happen. So Moses said to God, now this is, he's still objecting. 
Look, I come to the children of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? I suppose if somehow we could put ourselves back in time in Goshen, living among the Hebrews as slaves, who probably carried on quite a bit of discussion about the God of their fathers, we probably would think, well, you know, maybe that's a valid point because they, grew, they, they, they existed for hundreds of years in a society that had this plethora of gods, and they all had a name. All these gods had different names. The mindset of most people, and this may have crept into the culture a little bit of Israel, the mindset was that deities were local and nationalistic in nature. Hardly anybody outside of the descendants of Abraham could even grasp the concept of an all-powerful God. So you think back from this time backward, what are some of the things, what are some of the names that God had been given by Abraham and the people in the story of Abraham following down to this time? Well, they called him El, they called him Elohim. Uh, Elion, they called him, which is, you know, uh, mighty, Elion, most high. El Shaddai, they called him Shaddai in, in Genesis before this, which was the almighty God. And they also, his name first appears, as I recall, among men. Uh, his name appears in the, in the narrative when, uh, when man came on the scene. And the Lord God said... Yahweh Elohim said. But his name is first used as recorded in the Bible among men. I'm sure it could have been used before this, but the first time that it's recorded that it's used is, is when Seth began to have children. Then men began to call themselves by the name of Yahweh or call upon themselves, call upon Yahweh. And that's where his name is seen as being directly applied, although you know, most likely was earlier, but in the scriptures, to Seth. All right? He was a son of Adam. Now, that means that at the earliest, at the earliest, I mean, how would have Seth known unless, unless Adam taught him the, 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 the name of God, personal God, personal name of God, so you can look at this question that Moses asks. You look at it, okay, Egypt has all these deities, and there's that one, and there's this one, and there's this one, and there's this one, and there's this one. They all have these different symbols and weird-shaped animals and all. And then our fathers called the great God of Abraham. They called him El. They called him Elohim. They called him El Shaddai. They called him Elion, El Elion. And they called him Yahweh. So, okay, they're going to ask me, well, what's his name? And that may have been a point of interest to the Hebrews. Certainly, they had, they had 
documents preserved so that they would have understood the God of their forefathers. And in whatever documents, that was their only Bible, uh, whatever they had would have referenced certain ways that the great God in heaven was addressed. And so it might, it might have been an interesting thing to them as well. You know, well, what are we really going to call him? Now this is going to be, and they're going to get up close and personal because they're going to be right there when God does all this stuff for them. So what, what, they're going to ask me, what is his name? And maybe it's because Moses would like to know. You know, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> what is your name? My friend wants to know. And just, just to show, I mean, this is God's word. A, a, a man could not have conceived this, I don't think. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, so you shall say to the children of Israel, Eche has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. Now, this Eche, Eche, it is noted by Hebrew scholars that every form of the Hebrew verb to be is used. In this, okay, so it is saying, here's who you tell them sent you. I was, I am, and I will always continue to be. That's what he called himself. Well, you just think about it. You you can't be any deeper or simpler than to have God say. This is the only way that you can understand who I am and, and the characteristics that I possess are beyond your way. It's outside of your time-space continuum, but for the sake of your people, here's what you can say. There was never a time when I wasn't unlike the other deities of Egypt. They were created. You could go back in historical times and you could find a time when those deities didn't exist. They, they, they popped up somewhere along the way, demon possession. There never was a time that I didn't, so this means that he goes back and he's creator. I am now, and I think implicit in that statement is you're going to see that I am the true and living God. There is no other God. You're going to see this. And you're going to experience that, my, that, that I am the same all the way through. My power is almighty. And I will always be. As a matter of fact, Moses then, at the end of his life, is ushered into the presence of, of Yahweh such that he reappears to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And 
it certainly was a lesson to him that Yahweh not only always was, of course, Moses is the one who put together and compiled the books of Moses, which include the creation account. So he would have direct knowledge that this is creator God. There is no God other than him, certainly not, nothing before him. Everything about existence came from the creative hand of God, everything. So there's nothing that predates or preexists God. He's all-powerful. There is nothing that can stay the hand of God. He will bring them out of Egypt. They're powerless. They don't have an army. Pharaoh has the best army in the world. They don't have any wealth. All the, much of the wealth of the world belongs to Egypt. Uh, they were not organized as a nation. Egypt was well-organized as a nation. Uh, all these things are against them, and it's by the hand of God. So he can say, I am. I always was. I am. I always will be. Moses will experience this in his existence, even all the way through to the Mount of Transfiguration and today even beyond. So he, he always will experience that God always will be. Uh, so this is something that, that Moses uh, uniquely extracts from God, although God would, would say it to him, this is who I am. I am who I am. Uh, you and I have the same experience in the sense that we have faith in our Creator. We understand there's no other God, that God created everything. We understand through salvation experience and through the sanctification of the Lord in our lives as we move toward the time of death in life, we understand the power of God. We, we reflect on it all the time. I couldn't have made it through that without God. You know, these, the God is here. I see Him. I see prophecies being fulfilled. I see all this, the power of his word that is still here. And then on some day better than this one, we will experience the, the eternity of God in that uh, we'll be taken out of this life, we'll be in his presence, and we will continue on and keep going. So this is God. He always was, he is, he always will be, and his own are in his hand. He puts himself, he puts himself right there with Moses. God said to Moses, this is what you're going to say, and I, I'm always with you. I'm with you. You don't have to worry about delivering the children of Israel. I'll take care of it. This is the great, this is the great message that, that, that Christianity stumbles over in this marvelous day of preaching the grace of God. Christ is our Sabbath. Our call is to understand that we're helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves saved. We could not birth ourselves into this world. We could not regenerate and rebirth ourselves spiritually. We cannot stop the onset of physical death and we will always be in the hand of God because the completed work of Christ, Christ is our Sabbath. There's, we can't add to or strengthen our sanctification. We can't add to or strengthen the greatness of our salvation. It is all of Christ. And so the great call of God in Christ is to rest in Christ. Just have faith. Rest in Christ. He's with us. He'll use us as he sees fit, and it's going to happen. It'll happen. 
by the power of God. Now that's sort of what Moses is experiencing here. Moses is sort of experiencing the same kind of thing where God would kind of say like, you know, Moses, would you rest on my mighty hand? Just do what I tell you to do and let my mighty hand do the work. You can't add to it. This is why God rested on the seventh day in creation. He wasn't tired. He was through. There was nothing left to do in his sovereign plan of creation. He will not add to it. This is it. So he rested on his accomplishment of creation. And nobody since then has added anything to it. Well, this is, so, this is what he's saying to Moses. Rest in my mighty hand. Just have faith in me. Follow along. Obey my command. I'll do all the work. When you lead them out of Egypt. You will worship on the mountain. So here's what you will say. You will say to the children of Israel, this is what's going to happen. I am has sent you. All right, let's, what time is it? Let's keep going. Verse 15. And God said further to Moses, so you will say to the children of Israel. Now there's that language again. It should not escape our attention. <coughs> this is what you shall say. This is what you'll say. You will say this. Now, there's no wiggle room there. You can't, Moses can't ad-lib and add to or even take away from. Moses will say, this is the power of God. See, God is in control. You will say to the children of Israel, Yahweh of your, well, the Lord God of your father, forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to every generation. Okay, now think about that. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has been revealed as creator God, the only God, has his people in every generation. Every generation. He's preached about. He's remembered. People are taught who he is. People come to faith in him. It's all by the power of God. This is my name. This is my memorial to every generation. There will never be a time when there are not the elect of God in this world, believing in God, trusting in God, called by God to himself, by the power of God, cared for by the power of God, being taken to the appointed destiny that God has purposed for them, for us. So this is what he says. I'm going to always be, I've always been around, I'm going to always be around. This is just part of the, this is just part of the plan. Going to take them out. So now, verse 16, go and assemble the elders of Israel, and you will say to them, Yahweh Elohim of your, or the Lord God of your fathers, 
has appeared to me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I have surely remembered or, or watched over you and what is being done to you in Egypt. Okay, now in, in, the, in the tense of the language, what he's, what he's saying is, I have always been around. You've been through some tough times. I knew this was going to happen. It's all according to my purpose. I know that generations have passed. They lived and died in the land of Goshen. I understand it. I know them. I know who they are, where they are. I'm taking care of them. The time has come, however. The fullness of the time has come, according to my purpose, my plan, to bring you out of Egypt. You are now a mighty nation. They don't call themselves a nation just yet. But God's going to declare that they're a nation. And you have remembered me. There's always been some sort of remembrance of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The beautiful thing about the day in which we live is we have the completed word of God. They didn't have that. By the divine purpose of God, they didn't need it up at that point. Their job was to believe that God sent Moses, that Moses was God's spokesman, and that by the power of God, they were going to be led out of bondage. That was their job. So, the great call upon this generation is, understand that I've always known you were here in Egypt. 400 years is a long time for people, but it's nothing to me. All of those who lived before in the land of Goshen and have died, they're not lost to me. I know who they are. I created them. I wrote the book of their lives. So everything's cool. I'm going to take care of it. But now the time has come, and you happen to be the generation that has swelled to the numbers of nationhood. And Moses happens to be the guy who was raised up in Egypt and understands things that uniquely qualifies him for this position and then in 40 years of his, of his being in the desert of Midian, these things have enriched his life in ways that he doesn't understand. And Moses is going to see how all this comes together. And I am going to keep him in my hand. I'll never leave him or forsake him. And you just do what I tell you to do. This is your job. It's a simple thing. Parenthetically in that would have been included and don't do what I don't say do. Don't do stuff on your own. Have faith and be happy. Italics, gospel according to Charles. Don't murmur and complain. End of italics. That wasn't part of the job description. The job description was to happily and simply trust God. Just trust Him. You're one of his. He didn't make a mistake. He's going to bless you. He's going to take you where he wants you to be. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. Gets a little bumpy sometimes. Don't worry about it. The pilot is in the hand of God. And God is doing exactly with each generation as he would do to finally and divinely accomplish his sovereign purpose. 
so that at the end of all things, God will be glorified in everything. His will be the glory, the honor, and the power. That's where it's headed in the Revelation. We learn that. All right, so then, uh, what was that, verse 16? Verse 17. And I said, Vomar, and I have said, this is, this is it. I'm not going to change it. I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now that, of course, is a beautiful description of a, of a land of, of prosperity. Milk and honey. That means that there were beautiful fields there that were rich and could feed cattle. Cattle could produce milk. The fields were rich because they had flowers and the flowers were pollinated by the bees and the bees created the honey. It was just a perfect cycle of life. That was, it was at the highest level of production. That's. No, I don't say that it's as perfect as the Garden of Eden. Well, I'd say the comparison to that. For what they were at that time, that's the best comparison they could have had, yeah. Yeah. Um, they would still have to deal with thorns and thistles, which they didn't have to deal, you know. Uh, but at that point in the history of the world, or even in today, today's world, that would have been the most plush and perfectly prepared land that... God could give to his people. Another thing is, look at this. Now this is, this is, this is uh, gospel according to Charles. It's in italics. You can take it or leave it, all right? So I'm going to read you the gospel according to Charles. Okay, this is not divinely inspired, but I'm going to bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, italics, I put them there to prepare the land for you. They didn't realize it, but they were working for you. The land's going to be ready for you when you get there. Close italics. To a land flowing with milk and honey. This again is resting in the hand of God. I don't have to do the work. All I have to do is obey. Have faith. I'm headed to a land that God has prepared for me. It is rich. It's wonderful. I can have nothing more than what God provides for me. The Beatitudes begin in the Greek New Testament, translated blessed. Blessed are the meek and so forth. The Greek word is makarios. It's an interesting, there's an interesting history to that word. The word translated in English, blessed, or the poor in spirit, all those, you know. Makarios is said to have been a word created and developed by the Greeks 
to describe the island of Cyprus in its state when the gods lived there. The island of Cyprus in that day, my understanding today is it's not real pretty. I've never been there, but in those days, it was plush with everything. Beautiful, clear water running through the brooks and the creeks, nice little waterfalls, flowers everywhere, smelled so perfectly in constant bloom because of the place in the world right where it's situated. And then, and then there, uh, there were the fruit trees that just produced fruit without anybody ever having. You just walk through and eat some pomegranate and drink some nice cool water and sit down, have a bed made of flowers, you know, and smell the sweetness. The thought of those Greeks, they were pagans, was that the gods made that place for themselves because it gave them everything they could want and they could want nothing more than that. That's the word makarios. Well, that's the thought that we would bring back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, land flowing with milk and honey. That's the thought that God was projecting for the Israelites. I put these, I put these infidels in there. God can do that. He can do anything he wants to do. He's God. And I put them there, and they've worked hard. They cleared the land, and man, they've planted pretty stuff because I gave it to them. And I, 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 I made it such that they would, they would make this wonderfully productive land, but the only reason they were doing it, the only reason I had them there was to make the land for you because the land belongs to you, and it's already there. Everything that you, you could use that Greek word makarios to describe the beautiful life that one would have in the land of promise. Now, if God says that it's a nice and good land, he's God. If God ever uses an adjective, my heavens, that's a pretty powerful adjective, you know. So God says, this thing is ready for you. Just all you got to do is believe in me. Go right on in there. I've prepared it for you. It's yours. Everything's going to be fine. You just are going to walk right into a land, and all you have to do is happily maintain it and enjoy my presence in the tabernacle as I continue to bless you. Just believe in me. That's, that's it. Well, we know, of course, what happens at the, in the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, verse 18. And they will hearken to your voice. And you will come, you and the elders of Israel. Now, you know, who are these guys? Moses has probably never met them before. Who? The elders of Israel. What are we going to do? You will do this. They will hearken to your voice. You will come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, Yahweh the Lord God of the Hebrews, has happened upon us. He has, he has made him, he's manifested himself to us. And now we want a three-day vacation. That's not asking much. It doesn't seem for all they've done. 
Let us go for three days' journey in the desert and let us offer sacrifices to Yahweh el or the Lord our God. Three days. Let us do this. Three days. However, I know, this is the divine sovereign sovereignty of God. I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except through a mighty hand. So what God is doing, he's setting Pharaoh up. And he's going to put him in a corner to do what has to be done that would be the only thing that Pharaoh could understand. Pharaoh's not a spiritual guy. He's a hardened heart. The only thing that Pharaoh can understand is a mighty hand. Now, he thinks he's God, see. People have convinced him he's, he's a son of the God, sun god, you know, Ra. Ra Amsis. He, he thinks he's something. He's proud and arrogant. He thinks he can get his way and that there's none greater than him. So God is saying here, he's saying, you know, he's going to find and really, the, the, the mighty hand of God is really just sort of a, it's not even the little finger of God. I mean, God could have done anything. It's just the voice of Christ, the, the projected word of God coming from the mouth of Christ that comes forth as a sword at the battle of Armageddon that utterly defeats the armies of the world. Just a word from the mouth of Christ. So the point is, you know, he does it as much as an illustration to make a point with Israel as he does for Pharaoh. He's not going to permit you to go except through a mighty hand. Now, all this is already known to God. And I will stretch forth my hand and smite the Egyptians with all of my miracles that I will wreak in their midst. And afterwards, he will send you out. Now, you know, when they go through the plagues and they get to the last one, death the firstborn, the time of the Passover, it is then that God says, okay, this is it. This one's going to break him. So get ready. See, God already knows all this. Afterwards, he will send you out, verse 21. And I will put this people's favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And it will come to pass that when you go, not if you go, when you go, you will not go empty-handed. You will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall seek or, or inquire from her neighbor and from the dweller in her house silver and gold objects and garments, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall empty out or plunder Egypt. Plunder Egypt on your way out. Now, see, those things really didn't belong to the Egyptians. They belonged to God. All the trinkets and gold and stuff, garments, all those things belong to God. He can distribute that stuff any way he wants to. Well, these are his people. The Egyptians were enriched. First of all, it begins with the mind of Joseph, right? And then... As their history goes on, the, the, the slave labor and the, the, the 
abuse that the Hebrews suffered at the hand of Egyptians helped them to come to become what they were. So God says, here's what's going to happen. Every woman will go into her neighbor's house and say, you know, something like, hey, I'm, I'm from among the Hebrews of Goshen. Oh, please come in and take whatever you want. <laughs> and then please leave. That's what it's going to be. I will put your people, this people's favor in the eye. I will do it. Put it in the eyes of the Egyptians. It will come to pass. You won't go empty-handed. Each woman will inquire from her neighbor and from the dweller in her house, silver and gold objects, garments. Hello, I'm from the Hebrew. I'm, I'm here to collect all your silver and gold and your garments. Give me your closet and stuff in there. Please take it. Find favor in that. That's pretty good. I want, you to, I want to do this for you. Okay. Uh, and you will put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you will plunder or empty out Egypt. Now that's, there's a lot that's going to happen from here to the time that happens. But it's all designed to show both sides, the Egyptians and the Israelites, the mighty hand of God. I told you this is where we were headed. You should just, just rest on my hand. Don't worry about it. They're going to fuss and kick and snort and carry on. They're going to try some stuff and they're going to throw some deception. They're going to bring their own magicians in and they're going to play tricks on you. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. I know exactly what to do. I'm going to do it. Just have faith in me and my mighty hand. Well, we'll stop there. And God willing, we'll pick it up next time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your almightiness. Thank you that in the course of time, you called me into your salvation. Father, we marvel at your grace. We're humbled by it. And we shall spend into the ages of the ages our existence thanking you and glorifying you and praising your name for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.